giant robot smashing into other giant robots. This is the Giant Robot Smashing Into Other Giant Robots podcast, where we explore the design, development, and business of great products. I'm your host, Lindsay Christensen, and with me today is Anuj Adia, VP of Growth at Jamber and author of the upcoming book, Growth Hacking for Dummies. Welcome to the show. Good to be here. So I had Karen Rubin on the show this year. You actually know each other, is that right? Yeah, I had her on for an AMA when I was at Growth Hackers. So she's at Owl Labs, and I asked her the same thing I'm going to ask you, okay. which is, what is growth? What is this term growth that that companies are using? Sure. Uh, and I think firstly, they're using the term growth because they either think the phrase growth hacking is too corny or it's too buzzwordy, or in some cases might even be embarrassed to be saying the word. So let's use growth as the catch-all for <laughs> growth hacking. So you actually think it's growth hacking. It's not growth. Yes, because both those words mean something. Right. And because you know, the growth part is obvious, but what trips people up is the hacking part. Right. Because the association is with the cliched computer hacker in movies. And of course, that person's always a criminal and doing things <laughs> they shouldn't be doing and fooling people and tricking people. And that's an association that's also tied itself to growth hacking mm-hmm. is that whatever it is you do are these. Uh, spammy things or tricks to fool people into doing something so that you can show engagement. And there are these bunch of tactics that you keep executing on when it couldn't be further from the truth. Mm -hmm. Uh, The entire premise of growth hacking is a sustainable growth. But to say sustainable growth hacking would be too long and not as fun (laughs) to say. And the sustainable piece comes from constantly experimenting and testing your way to understand your customers' motivations and figure out what delivers the most value to them. And more often than not, you've got to be really creative about how you arrive at those solutions. And that's what the hacking part is really all about, is more about the creativity that you need to display to arrive at solutions that may not be obvious to you upfront, that then allow you to create building blocks of sustainable growth. Okay. There's a lot of good stuff in there. So so you make a good point, which is the goal of every company is growth. (laughs) Then that's kind of falls under, you know, sales and marketing. Everything they're doing is around growth. But when folks are having these specific titles Mm -hmm. around growth, it's generally related to this idea of experimentation. Yes. And even there, there's a little bit of misunderstanding, though. When people talk about, oh, I need a growth hacker or I need a growth marketer, in my experience, more often than not, what they're really looking for is an acquisition marketer or a performance marketer. Mm -hmm. And that, too, I think is part of the misunderstanding that still exists about what growth hacking really is. Interesting. So an acquisition marketer is not a growth marketer. They can be. Mm Mm-hmm. I think where the disconnect is, where do all of these roles fall within the construct of this growth hacking thing? Mm-hmm. Right. So I think if you pull it all back to what the definition was intended to be, which is that growth hacking is intended to be a cross-functional interdepartmental process of constant experimentation 
across the entire customer journey to discover opportunities to grow value to them. That is a pretty good definition. It's almost like you just wrote a book about this. I did. (laughs) (laughs) Amazingly. (laughs) So that you think that growth hacking can actually expand beyond the the growth roles. And I probably... It 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 is intended to, yeah, right? Because only when you have a common definition across the company of what value even is, only then can you harness all of these departments together to work in concert to grow that value. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, everybody gets caught up in their own departmental metrics, right? Marketing cares about their qualified leads and, you know, sales cares about their quotas and engineers care about how many bugs they fixed, and product cares about how many features were released. And all of those are important, but they all need to be in the service of growing value to your customers. So if you have a common way of defining value, you then get everybody to understand what it is that they do that contributes to growing value to your users or customers. And so while all of those things are important, the question you always ask yourself is, is what I'm doing today helping move the needle on value delivered? If not, you're probably working on something you shouldn't be. And what's an example of what that value could be? Right. So this is what we commonly define as a North Star metric. It's literally intended to be a quantification of the value delivered. And when I've asked this question to many, many startups, I get blank looks because they've never really thought about it. And the most common answer I get is, oh, it's revenue, right? We're making money. And when I ask them, okay, so if you paid for something, does that mean you got value out of it? You know, I get blank stares again. Mm -hmm. And so it almost always is a function of some deep use of a product or a service, which is what delivers that value. And that value is different for every product out there. So as an example, Uber's North Star metric would be the number of rides taken. Because only when you take a ride do you get value out of it, and would you want to even use it again? So rides from an individual user? Yes. Mm -hmm. And so their focus wouldn't be as much on making you take more rides necessarily. At the most global level, they wouldn't necessarily care whether one person is taking more rides or 10 people are taking their first ride. And while that segmentation is clearly important, At the highest level, if they are growing the number of rides taken, by definition, the people taking the rides are getting value, the drivers on their platform get to make money, and Uber gets to make money, right? And so this North Star metric is very closely tied to the revenue model of the product or the company, because revenue is a function of value delivered. And so it's a lagging indicator of value, and what a North Star metric gives you is a leading indicator of value. And so is that metric usually an engagement? More often than not, it's a more retention-focused metric Mm -hmm. because clearly retention, again, is a function of use. Does growth hacking lend itself towards specific types of products? For example, is it usually like the direct-to-consumer kind of service app that's doing this? It could apply literally across the board, to be very honest, because every business 
literally is in the business of providing value to its customers, right? And that's Hopefully. how you make money. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Every legitimate business is in the business of yeah. providing value to If its customers. If you don't have a shadow business, <laughs> this right. could work for you. <laughs> and so I think it could apply almost to any kind of business. The one place it, I think, maybe doesn't apply is when you've got the kind of product that has a very low sales volume. Right, like annual insurance or houses or cars or mm-hmm. something like that, where the numbers are so low that you wouldn't really get much data from experimenting because you just wouldn't reach any statistical significance. But even in those scenarios, you can apply the same context to sales processes or to operational processes to improve the efficiency of how people get to that value. Mm-hmm. So ThoughtBot's obviously a consulting company, so we provide services, not products. But I do, especially I think because I come from like a demand gen right. background, uh, you know, my first love. <laughs> I, I do see myself, you know, using a lot of those frameworks still in how we think about experiments that we're doing, how we think about the website and how people interact with the website or email or, you know, and it, it might be more like project based and it's not necessarily a product engagement, but it's still thinking about like, each touch point and how to move the needle on each touch point. Absolutely. And and even with the case currently where I am at Jamber, right? It's a physical product. Yeah, why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about Jamber? Yeah. So so Jamber currently makes uh, what we're calling handware, which are products that are scientifically designed to be held by hands. Because if you think about it, a lot of the products you hold every day aren't really designed to be held. I mean, think about your coffee mug, you struggle to put your fingers in mm-hmm. and that, that's the flagship product today. It's a coffee mug. It's a coffee mug, mm-hmm. and it's the best coffee mug you'll hold, I promise you. But even with that, we can't iterate with the product every day like you could with a software product. Mm-hmm. Right? So we have to figure out how to apply these principles on other parts of the customer journey and maybe even tweak how we think about the customer journey. And an example of this is with a software product, you know, you think about you know the traditional R metrics, right? the acquisition, activation, uh, revenue, retention, referral, you know, pirate metrics that have been around for years. But in the case of a physical product, that aha moment only comes when you hold it or interact with it. Mm-hmm. And so the activation step is after the revenue step. <laughs> so, But all that means is that you've got to work harder to communicate that value up front. And so there's a lot more storytelling, you know, a lot more branding work up front to get people to understand, oh, I really need this thing. Mm-hmm. And so you, all the principles still apply because you still have to figure out how do I get people to the site? How do I get people to understand the value? How do I get them to buy? How do I get them to buy again? And how do I get them to tell their friends and family about us? So those principles don't change really no matter what kind of business mm-hmm. or product or service it is. It's, it's all the same. It's just you might have to tweak the order of things or how you think about it for your specific context. Those are the things you're working on currently as the the VP of growth at Jamber? Yeah, so it's a constant process of trying to understand where are our biggest opportunities for growth. So it's a small early stage team, right? Yes. And again, by definition, it has to be post-product market fit because you really should not be growing anything that you haven't validated. That's a very good point. Uh, Yes, we'll underline that one. Yeah. (laughs) 
and don't growth hack things that aren't validated. <laughs> and once you've proven that there is a market for this, then there are these series of steps, which is I think where the company's at right now, is to lay a really solid foundation for all of the growth we want to pour gas on later because we need to understand within the customer journey where are people falling off right now? Mm -hmm. uh, what are the touch points that actually make people go aha and click the button to buy? Mm -hmm. Or what is it other than a birthday or a sale that will get people to buy again? So it's the entire gamut, but it's a constant process of understanding what that growth model looks like, which is just looking through the steps of the entire customer journey understanding where the biggest drop-off is, go attack that with a lot of tests to understand how we can increase the odds of people going on to the next step in the customer journey, right? aka the conversion rate from one step to the other. And once we have a handle on that, to step back and say, okay, if we fix this, that people are taking the next step more often, where's the next problem or next opportunity? And then going back in and running a lot more tests to understand what it is that will take people to the step that comes after that. How do you actually map out that customer journey? Like literally, like what tool or sheet or, you know, what does this look like in your world? I try to keep things really simple just to start with, because I think this is one of the bigger traps is you, you can really overcomplicate this with data and analytics Fancy and tools. tools. Yeah, keep it really simple. And so if you just use that basic R framework as your starting point, mm -hmm. which is, again, acquisition, activation, revenue, retention, and referral. And look at the tools you have currently that give you the information about what are the conversion rates at a very macro level from one step to the other. You'll be able to tell pretty quickly where the biggest drop-off is. Right? So if it's acquisition, you may be running ads, you may, you know, Google Analytics will give you this really easily. It'll tell you across channels, mm -hmm. you know, how much traffic are you getting to your site, as an example. So you have that number. You might have a hypothesis for activation means they do step one and two in a certain order on the site, or they click this button and they click that other button, or they watch a video and then they do something, mm -hmm. whatever it might be, and understand, okay, so of the 1,000 people that showed up on our site last week, 500 of them went and did these steps that we believe makes the light bulb go off. Mm -hmm. Of those 500 people, 400 actually clicked the buy button. And for those folks in the activation stage, are you basically looking at who bought and then what was their behavior and then assuming you can apply that to a broader audience of people assessing? Right. So the who bought is an interesting uh, point because depending on the kind of business, the who may or may not be as important at that time. Mm -hmm. So for example, in an e-commerce business, you may not know who the person is until they've bought. Right. right. So you have to take a more aggregate view of, it's these many people. We know how many, we don't know who. Mm -hmm. uh, versus if you had like a SaaS business, you could have tools that could tell you who did what and when. So, but whatever the case may be, I think it's important to get the more aggregate view first as to what is the overall behavior for you know the population of people that have shown up to take the steps we would like them to take. And if you do have that data that allows you to identify who these people are, then that allows you the opportunity to segment further to then understand, okay, if we saw 
50% of the people take the steps we want them to take what is the makeup of these people like did they all come from one company one location mm-hmm. whatever those dimensions you want to slice and dice by and if you have their email address of course that's even better because then that allows you to call them up and say hey <laughs> you know tell us more and it's yeah. important to do that because the quantitative part of your data will only tell you what happened it won't tell you why yeah and so it's always important to have quantitative and qualitative data live side by side for you to have the complete picture of what happened why did it happen so you can understand more about tests you might want to run or hypotheses you might want to develop for improving your conversion rates i feel like that's something that gets lost in the mix a lot is trying to seek out that qualitative data that's possibly the more important part in all of this because if you buy the premise of growth hacking being growing value to your customers how will you understand what that value is if you don't talk to them so what do you say when you follow up with people so i think it could be one of two things and generally people tend to focus more on the people that don't do what you want them to do because that's an easy place to look and you literally could you know would be asking questions like hey we know you tried to log in and you know do whatever it is your product wants you to do what stopped you from moving to that next step mm-hmm. right and did something get in the way did you not see something whatever it may be on the flip side though you also want to be talking to the people that do behave the way you want them to behave because not only do you want to understand what are these people seeing that the other people aren't and mm-hmm. find the pattern there and make what they are seeing more explicit for everybody else but you'll also get to understand more about their motivations which also then allows you to create more segmented or personalized experiences for different kinds of audiences that are behaving the same way or at least appear to be behaving the same way and more often than not you'll probably also get some insights you never expected to get because sometimes people are using your product or your service for reasons you absolutely had no clue they were using it for which again opens out brand new opportunities for you i love asking questions around acquisition too as soon as like possible to when they did it so they not haven't forgotten but like where were you looking what were you searching for do you literally remember the search term you know you put in to again help with that sort of beginner of the buyer's journey too but i think that's also a good strategy because you you're catching them at a point in time where they're really interested mm so they're more likely to respond to you versus whenever it is you think you might want to ask or god forbid you don't ask yeah yeah and so then uh with referral are you tracking that through referral codes or yes. are there other ways to do that uh, yeah i think that's th- there are links i suppose yeah there are plenty of tools out there that will create custom links for you and it's as easy as people put in an email address and get a custom link uh, and especially i think for you know businesses that are i think more e-commerce or dtc i think referrals can be a really huge part of your growth engine it's very predictable customer acquisition costs mm-hmm. right and virality y- yes <laughs> for those of you at home anuj is rolling his <laughs> eyes a little bit here <laughs> and it has nothing to do with the fact that we live in the times of coronavirus oh no uh, um but We're both in hazmat suits. Yeah. <laughs> I think what I would rather optimize for is customer happiness. Because if you've got really happy customers, they will have no problem talking about you or referring you unheeded. And we have that case currently 
is that we have so many customers that love the product so much that they can't be bothered you know with getting the reward of the referral program they'll just talk about it like i don't want the 10 dollars that you're going to give me for me referring i'm just going to tell my friends like that's great i mean we'd like to track but you know it's then incumbent on us to again always be asking how did you find out about us mm-hmm. right and i think that's a very simple question that also doesn't get asked very often because how else will you discover new potential channels you know for customers if you don't ask yes how did an expert growth hacker like yourself <laughs> end up at a little startup that was you know started out with making coffee mugs what attracted you oh many things first was just the founding story it's a husband wife co-founding team and the husband just wanted to make something that his grandfather could hold because he couldn't hold anything heavier than a paper cup and that journey took them on a two and a half year development cycle to actually build a coffee mug that he could hold and they did wow that's kind of amazing i don't really think about the fact that a coffee mug i mean you're i'm You'd, exactly. i can hold a coffee mug fine it's still yeah still not very pleasant or right. necessarily easy to hold so i imagine yeah anyone who's differently able is really having a struggle there right and so that was the key insight that they had was that these everyday products aren't really made for human hands as much as they're made for ease of manufacturing oh right because so, even the phone that you hold right now it's really designed to fit into your pocket it's not really designed for you to flick through 300 times a day <laughs> and that's how carpal tunnel happens to <laughs> <laughs> right, Too right. <laughs> <laughs> so the founding story was clearly great mm. uh, and just the word of mouth like it's rare to come across products that people rave about let alone say this changed my life or this changed somebody in my family's life you know when you get all these really emotional reviews people saying you know there was, our whole family was in the kitchen crying because you know my grandfather lifted something for the first time in 3 years wow it's it's rare to find a product like that that's powerful how did you get connected with them um so i've been hosting uh, growth office hours at uh, the harvard innovation labs for the last 2 years and i'd met the co-founders there and they they were always half jokingly asking me you know hey do you want a marketing gig do you want a growth gig and, and i i always turned them down and then it was just one of those points where I'm like let me think about this some more yeah and uh, that combination of the story just the raving about the product and the potential for this to be something that can become life changing for everybody not just people who are differently abled was i think worth it taking the jump and saying let's see what we can do with this thing because people just see a mug we see something you know very different We're going to take a quick break to tell you about today's sponsor, ExpressVPN. Okay, so we all know how a VPN protects your privacy and security online, right? But it can also take your TV watching game to the next level. You can use a VPN to unlock movies and shows that are only available in other countries. For example, you can use ExpressVPN to binge Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, one of the greatest shows of all time, on Australian Netflix. It's so simple, just fire up the Express VPN app, change your location to Australia, refresh Netflix, and that's it. Express VPN hides your IP address and lets you control where you want sites to think you're located. You can choose from almost 100 different countries, so just think about all the Netflix libraries you can go through. 
Love anime? Use ExpressVPN to access Japanese Netflix and be spirited away. But it's not just Netflix. ExpressVPN works with any streaming service, Hulu, BBC iPlayer, YouTube, you name it. There are hundreds of VPNs out there, but ExpressVPN is ridiculously fast. There's never any buffering or lag, and you can stream in HD no problem. ExpressVPN is also compatible with all your devices. Phones, media consoles, smart TVs, and more. So you can watch what you want on the go or on the big screen wherever you are. If you visit expressvpn.com slash robots, you can get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. Support the show, watch what you want, and protect yourself at expressvpn.com slash robots. Thanks again to ExpressVPN for sponsoring this episode of Giant Robots. So I'm also curious about kind of what your career has been like leading up to Jamber. Have you always been in like growth marketing related roles? Um, No. Uh, So I spent my first 13 years of work straight out of school at a medical device company. Really? Yes. Uh, And where I did a lot of second level support for field engineers for a lot of it. And uh, towards the end, was doing a lot of process improvement. I was actually in the middle of a Lean Six Sigma Greenbelt project when the opportunity for growth hackers arrived. So I never got to finish that project. But <laughs> okay, so you went from 13 years at a med device company and then into growth hackers. Yeah, and the reason I was at that med device company was because I have degrees in chemistry and biochemistry. And I get the sort of reaction you just gave me where people are like, what? (laughs) (laughs) What I didn't realize, and this was Sean Ellis's insight, was that I was actually more prepared for a career in growth than most marketers because growth is all about a process and it's about applying the scientific method to marketing and product development. And so I already understood what that process was. And all of us actually understand that process because we've all been in chem lab in grade school. We've all had those sheets that said aim, hypothesis, you know, goal, expected right. results, method, observations, conclusions, and next steps. I love that. I totally buy that. That you're probably much better at <laughs> marketing experiments <laughs> than marketers because you can p- apply a, an unbiased scientific mind. Right, and and just the hard sciences teach you more systems level thinking and more holistic thinking. So you live life with a healthy dose of paranoia that if you made a change, you've got to expect a reaction somewhere. And if you don't see one, you know, you have these sleepless nights saying, "What happened? You know, something's <laughs> got to happen." <laughs> and I didn't realize how much that prepared me, you know, to be able to think a little more strategically than the more tactical marketing that tends to pervade popular consciousness, you know, with the top 10 ways to do this and the five best headlines for that. Listicles. Yeah, I'm like, no, that, that's, that's not the growth stuff. That's one a- small aspect of an outcome of growth stuff. So what is a good structure for a growth experiment? So I think everything falls apart without a really specific hypothesis. And uh, they don't have to be very complicated hypotheses. They just have to be very specific. Mm-hmm. because ultimately you're talking about changing variables. So you have to be very specific about, if I make this change, I expect to see this result, which I will measure in this way. 
that's all a hypothesis really is. But it's really hard sometimes to be very specific about that. Could you give an example? Sure. So let's say we're talking about acquisition since that's something you love Yeah, I love talking about acquisition. Right? And let's say I'm running, you know, a a Facebook lead ad, you know, to get signups for my pre-Black Friday, you know, offer email list. And and so an example of a, a hypothesis would be that that if I run a Facebook lead ad with this creative that features a mother and her daughter talking about mugs for 15 seconds, that 50% of the people that see that ad will click on the sign me up for this list. Mm-hmm. So it's very specific about the creative. It's very specific about the time. It's very specific about the kind of ad it is. It's not just a Facebook ad or an ad. It's a Facebook lead ad that I'm serving up and you can make it even more specific with the kind of audience you're going to expose to that ad. And then you know how you're going to measure it because you measure it by the number of signups as a result of that lead ad, right? And that then gives you the basis to say, okay, I ran this kind of ad. I can run a hundred different kinds of lead ads with different creatives, with different uh, CTAs, with different headlines, whatever the case may be. But then I have the ability to do evaluate the efficacy of each of these ads very discreetly because I have a very specific way of measuring the result, which is signups or no, mm-hmm. and how many if I did. How do you think about the different elements of creative in an ad experiment and like which one is impacting the action? Like, because you've probably got copy and an image. Right. So I think we always step back. And I think what you're really alluding to is... I think, you know, this idea of how big should your swing be? Hmm. I think that's really what it is because people get too caught up in the nitty gritty and the small stuff, right? And this is not something I came up with. This is an idea that Brian Balfour, uh, who is the VP of growth at HubSpot, uh, he came up with. And he defined this whole idea of, you know, thinking about experimenting as a game of battleship. Okay. Because when you're playing battleship, when you throw your first ping, you have no idea whether that ping is going to hit a boat or not, right? So you just throw something. Let's say you throw something on A5. Now, if you didn't hit something, you'd probably take a big swing and throw something on like I7, like on the other end of the spectrum, right? And if you got a hit there, your next one isn't going to be A4. It's probably going to be I6 or something in the vicinity of that first ping, and I think that's the approach to all sorts of tests and certainly true of even these creative or ad sort of tests is first, what, what is that first ping and what is that big swing? So try, try two really different yeah, Radically different things first. Mm-hmm. Right? So maybe one is just an image and one is a video, mm-hmm. right? And see which one gets a better response. And you can A-B test this now very easily. And people say, oh, video works better, but if I got a better response with just an image and a headline, I'm going to try, you know, change one thing at a time, right? I'll, maybe I'll keep the image, try different headlines, right? And sort of double down there on whatever I think is working within that big swing area. Mm-hmm. Doing some, like, classic optimization. R- right. But I think the, the critical thing that I think a lot of people miss is that when you're starting out, like, don't get bogged down with a best practice or a fixed notion of what your starting point should be. Mm-hmm. 
So you mentioned A-B tests, which was going to be my next question is how A-B tests fits into growth hacking. Is it the core of growth hacking? Are people overly obsessed with A-B tests in situations yes. where they don't make sense? Yes. Um, <laughs> and, and I think this is why... Definitely not sharing some of my own opinions there. No, but. <laughs> no, no I, th- I, th- I think you're, you're right. It's clearly an important part because you want data to inform what you do next. And A-B tests are a very important aspect of it. But I think where a potential trap exists is when you become dogmatic about you need data from an A-B test before you will take any action, right? And there are times when you can qualitatively tell that one thing is better than the other. You don't really need a test. You're just doing it because of some notion of completeness. Mm -hmm. So the scientist is saying it doesn't need to be statistically relevant? Uh, no. And so Whoa. here, so, so, let me, so let me talk about that. <laughs> so when you're doing these big swing tests, right? So let me go back to that idea. Yeah. I don't think you're looking for statistical significance as much as a signal. Right? And when you have that signal of, okay, there's more potential here, that's when you start to look for more statistical significance because the kinds of changes you're making now, I think, are much smaller. Mm-hmm. So to evaluate whether those small changes truly mean something, you need statistical significance. And I think this also plays into sort of the other trap of there's an opportunity cost to testing. So if the outcome of that test is going to be a potentially small gain for you, then you have to think about the time and resource investment that's going to go into that test you know, to understand whether is is running that specific test worth it or can you be doing something else that might give you something more valuable? And that could be anything from do you need to go back and get more qualitative data or are there other more potentially high-impact tests that you could be running that have meaningful impact to your North Star metric? So you mentioned after the med device company, you went to Growth Hackers. Yeah. For those not familiar... What is Growth Hackers? So Growth Hackers started out as a passion project community for Sean Ellis uh, because he had nowhere for people to go and nerd out about growth. And it uh, ballooned into a conference, uh, online training, a book. What year was it? Um, This was in 2015. Okay. This Uh, is a prime growth hacking time. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. This was right when it was about getting popular. But I found out about Growth Hackers before that. Growth Hackers actually launched before that. In fact, they launched about a year and a half before I joined. And uh, I was lucky enough to land up being one of the more active members on the community, learned a lot. But as with a lot of people who hang out on communities like these or read a lot of books, it all conceptually made sense, but I'd never gotten my fingers dirty to re- truly understand what all of this meant. Mm-hmm. And that's what the boot camp sort of was at Growth Hackers for four years, was understanding exactly, oh, this is what they really mean when they talk about all of these fancy words that people throw about, whether it's North Star metrics and aha moments and cohort analyses and every other marketing and growth term you've ever heard of. So you actually got to do that in action. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it was really interesting because the community gave Sean the idea for a product. And so that was the other thing the community ballooned into. And the really interesting part about that entire experience 
was that we never considered the community separate from product. It was all one unified experience. Mm -hmm. And so it sort of got meta in a way where we were using our own product to grow our own product, <laughs> uh, so sort of thing. That sounds like a positive thing. It, it is. It is awesome. And then what did you do after Growth Hackers? So I joined uh, this company called The Predictive Index, which has been around for 60 years, but nobody's heard of them. 6D. 6-0. Wow. Yeah. And uh, the biggest reason I joined them was because while I was at Growth Hackers, what I understood about growth was that it's this cross-functional process that requires everybody to be involved to grow value, right? And the predictive index makes uh, people analytics product, uh, what they call a talent optimization platform. Mm -hmm. And so their whole value proposition is, yeah, and here's how you build the team to do that. Okay. And that was a, like, oh, let me learn more about characteristics of people that make up high-performing teams. And this is different based on the kind of team, right? So whether it's a sales team or a, an engineering team or a growth team. So I felt like I had this unique opportunity to learn both sides of the coin, not only the process part, but the people part of growth. And so what were you specifically working on there? Around the time I joined, they were launching this site called talentoptimization.org. And this was when PI themselves we're going through a very strategic reposition from being just another HR tech product to a talent optimization platform. Mm -hmm. So they had done this all of this work around creating a whole new category called talent optimization. And this site was intended to be the tip of the spear to grow the awareness and the need for talent optimization across all, all organizations. How was it working at such a much older and larger company? Yeah, that was really interesting because the one thing that I don't think I was adequately prepared for was how much a company's culture is set when you're at a hundred and something people. Mm, yeah. You know, where, where Growth Hackers was really small. We were like eight, ten people. Yeah. And so coming into that environment, foolishly thinking that, oh, I'm going to institute these growth processes was not something I was uh, prepared for, uh, that it would take a lot more work for me to prove the efficacy of this process when they are not used to operating that mm. way. But they already have a machine that's working really well for them. And you know they're not going to listen to this new hire that says, no, no, stop doing that. I'm going to show you this growth hacking stuff. You know, wait, to, wait till you see how that works. So they didn't buy in to the growth uh, hacking? No, no, it's, they, they, they did. But it's something I ha would have to prove out on this site that I owned first mm -hmm. before people would start to see the impact and look for opportunities for where does this now belong in existing processes and how do those have to change? Because it's a meaningful change in an organization to operate like this. Yeah. Do you have suggestions for people who are maybe trying to do that at larger companies? Yes. Um, so... I took my inspiration actually from the director of growth at Adobe oh, wow. called uh, Thibaut Imber. He had the same problem right. and he did what, like I said, I took inspiration from, which was prove it out in a smaller context yeah. first and then expand it out. Because when you start to do all of these experiments, you are literally the person having the most fun. <laughs> and then everybody is like, why does that person get to have all of the fun I want in? Oh, and nice. Uh, Make them jealous. You literally, it, it, you're doing that. But there's also a lot of begging involved because you're asking for resources, mm -hmm. right? whether it's engineering resource or design resource. Right. 
But at the same time, that allows you this opportunity to show some really quick wins because what you're doing first, because you don't have resource, are really easy tests. Whether they're email headline tests or homepage copy tests, you know, stuff anybody can do on their own sort of thing. But you can prove out that, hey, I'm getting more people to join the platform because of this, or I'm getting people to engage more in our community because I send emails with these sorts of links. And when you start to show wins and growth like that, that starts to then iteratively and very slowly bring people around to think, okay, now let's try this in another small context somewhere else within the company and see how that works. And so at a certain point, you then basically fell in love and were wooed by the Jamber yeah. team. Uh, and then also somewhere in here also had time to write a book. No big deal. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so growth <laughs> hacking for dummies. How did this come about? What was the inspiration there? So I was writing this book for myself five years ago because when I joined Growth Hackers, I was trying to translate Sean Ellis's uh, speak. And he speaks plainly, but you know, I was a non-growth person you know, to understand it from the perspective of somebody who knows nothing about this and coming into it completely brand new. It's now, you know, 2020, and the concepts of growth and growth hacking, uh, you know, are pretty common now. But it's fair to say that there's still a lot of fallacy, misconceptions, controversy, misunderstanding. Ooh, what's the controversy? Well, so a lot of people hate the term, to put hacking. it lightly. Uh, I, th- I feel personally like... It was because it got bastardized and just used for every, every. All of a sudden, everything was hacking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it was like, how are we going to hack our to, to, totally. 401k? Yeah, <laughs> I think there's no question about it that it got co-opted by enough bad actors that it took on that negative connotation. And I've been lucky enough to interact with other startups that I've been able to mentor over the last few years. And inevitably their understanding of growth hacking also comes from these random articles that they've read. And that understanding is wrong. So even after all this time, there is not as much understanding outside of you know these centers of innovation like Silicon Valley or New York or Boston around what this thing truly is. And even within these centers, there's a lot of, let's say, variable definitions of what it means. And plus, I got sick of looking at uh, responses on Twitter where anytime somebody somebody did something spammy, you could literally see the quotation marks, you know, Ugh, stop with the growth hacking. And I'd be like, that's not growth hacking. That yeah. is literally spammy stuff. I definitely uh, have seen that too. And so this was my, uh, I guess, optimistic attempt at trying to, you know, stem that tide a little bit. You're a true growth hacking advocate. I, I am. I am. carrying the banner. Yeah. I was fortunate enough to stumble into a role where I got to learn about it from a thought leader in this space. So I look at myself as somebody who has at least a bit of authority to talk about what this topic is and what it truly means. And Sean himself has written a book. And his book is great if you've had some experience with marketing or product or growth, because it really crystallizes those concepts really well for you. Mm-hmm. But if you're somebody like me who has heard about it and read random articles, there really isn't a 101 resource that talks about growth hacking in the more strategic context and the more cultural change that needs to happen within an organization to take on this new mindset, you know, versus all of the other tactical stuff you read about every day. 
So yeah, who do you envision this book is for? So it's fair to say that there are new startups being founded <laughs> pretty much every day. Mm-hmm. Right. Some and, of them are good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and if you buy that most startups fail, and that's because they didn't get to product market fit, the ones that actually have a chance of growing, their biggest risk is their ability to grow fast enough. And this ability to develop this very experimental and you know data informed mindset doesn't happen magically overnight mm-hmm. right so i think the earlier you can start to inculcate that within your method of operating the better and so i would hope that startups that find themselves close to or at product market fit would start to read stuff like this I think even people who find themselves disillusioned by the idea of growth hacking, you know, give it a shot. Even though you may not learn anything new in terms of the concepts, if you're familiar with growth and all of the experimentation methodology, you'll at least find something that talks about growth, I think, in the context of being something sustainable and in the context of always thinking about it from the perspective of customer motivations and customer value rather than the flavor of the day. I really love that it's so important for you to think of growth hacking as something that is sustainable. I think that's also something that is missed. Completely, right? And it's almost weird to me in a way that people will think they're doing something that they classify as growth hacking, but it's literally intended to be something not quite seemly. I'm like, you're literally doing the opposite of what you say or you claim you're doing, Mm -hmm. which tells me you don't quite understand this. Mm -hmm. So I did a search on uh, LinkedIn as to how many people have growth hacker in their title. Mm -hmm. And I don't know whether I should be surprised at whether this number is small or not, but it's over 25,000 people. Okay. Which is far less. big. Yeah, but it's far less than the number of people that have TEDx speaker in their title. (laughs) (laughs) But, But... That to me is almost representative of the misunderstanding because, you know, it's not a job title. It's something you do. It's a way of life. Right. And I I always ask people, like, isn't it funny that the guy who came up with growth hacking has never described himself as a growth hacker or has that in his LinkedIn profile? Why do you think that is? This to me is sort of one of those things that are really emblematic of the level of misunderstanding about what it truly is. Is there anything in the book that's also actionable if someone's getting started first? Yes. So the entire thing is laid out as a process, walks through everything you need to know about how do you develop North Star metrics? How do you think about growth models? What are all the ways you could potentially grow? How do you run growth meetings? How do you begin to instill a culture of growth throughout your organization? And... uh, I've tried to make it as non-fluffy as possible (laughs) and as actionable as I could. And it's laid out for individuals to take on their own and run with it. But you certainly could use it as the beginnings of starting to get other people who might want to be on your team to start to adopt. That's what I was thinking just then. It seems like a great way to get people on the same page and even like speaking the same language about it. Absolutely. And especially for the smaller companies you know, who are trying to do this, what they inevitably find is that it's a lone wolf that starts this. Mm-hmm. 
but that lone wolf doesn't get anywhere unless they have the head of the company on board with this because they literally determine the culture and the direction of the company and uh, inevitably like the first head of growth you know in quotes is somebody who just you know has a desire for doing things a little bit differently in many cases it's even the ceo themselves who is the person that leads growth and is just working with a project manager mm-hmm. to help get these experiments off the ground and so it's written in in a fashion that wherever you are in the organization like if you are that lone wolf you could take this and start to use it to prove it out to the rest of the company that sounds like a great tool if folks are interested in getting the book what do, what do they do amazon.com is your friend oh i've heard of it and if you just type in growth hacking for dummies cuz that's likely easier than trying to type my name <laughs> you'll find it <laughs> And if folks want to follow along or connect with you, what's the best way to do that? I'm on Twitter and Twitter changed my life because Twitter was how I found out about growth hackers. September 30th, 2013. That was the day I found out about growth hackers. Wow, But, you know the day? Because that was the one and only time that Sean tweeted about growth hackers. Oh. And of the thousands of tweets I could have seen, that was the one I saw. Wow. So Twitter, I'm at Anujadhia. I try to keep it really simple. or linkedin i think i'm the only anujadeya on linkedin as well but if there are more than one i'm the only one smiling and laughing in their <laughs> picture <laughs> and one one thing i'm just starting to do is uh, do these growth nerd outs with people who are interested in this topic so if you are as well i am at adhia.youcanbook.me Uh, and if you, you i think the link will yeah, be there yeah we'll add the, the link in the show notes in the show notes uh, i'll have half an hour slots again no pressure all free and i i think we all learn more about growth when we uh, talk to different people and learn about their different uh, situations and you know if growth teaches you anything it's you don't know where inspiration will strike from you know as calvin and hobbs say there's treasure everywhere so this is just one attempt at learning uh, so if you want to take it up just click on the link in the show notes very cool that sounds like a great opportunity if you enjoyed today's episode book a sesh and if you've convinced anyone today that they need a jamber where do they get that uh, jamber.com is your friend j a m b e r.com anush thank you so much for coming on today and for the education on the growth hacking. Oh, it was my pleasure. <laughs> you can subscribe to the show and find notes for this episode at giantrobots.fm. If you have questions or comments, email us at host@giantrobots.fm and you can find me on Twitter at lindsay3d. This podcast is brought to you by Thoughtbot and produced and edited by Tom Obarski. Thanks for listening. See you next time. This podcast was brought to you by Thoughtbot. We are experienced designers and developers who turn your idea into the right product. With local studios in Boston, New York, San Francisco, Austin, London, and Raleigh-Durham, let's build something great together.